Okay, I'd like to take just a second and pray for uh, Father Michael, Michael Glenn at the Catholic Church. I think most of you know by now that he has a very aggressive brain cancer and uh, is struggling. And he's just a very good man, and we should lift him up. So let's stop and pray for him and pray for our country, election year. So, Father, I do lift up Michael. Uh, Lord, thank you for... Thank you for his faith in you, Lord, for those of us that had a, had a chance to read his uh, statements that he's putting out. It's so clear, his love for you and his love for his people. And, Father, I just enjoy him immensely. And uh, I know that he is fighting for his very life right now and uh, going through the chemo. And, Lord, there's, there's no way we can sugarcoat this. This is a very aggressive brain cancer. And uh, without your intervention, Lord, uh, his days are short, and we don't want that. Lord, he's a very important person in his church, just loving those people well. So we pray, we come and ask you that whatever method you choose, I don't care if it's the chemo, radiation, healing, it doesn't matter to me. I just pray that you would make the cancer go away and restore him to ministry. Thank you for the example that he is to us. And, Father, I pray for our country. Continue to pray we do as a church, Lord, this year, election year, that, Father, you would choose for us. We will all vote our conscience, but you would choose for us who you want to be our next president. And, Father, I don't know where they stand before you. I pray that this process would draw whoever that is to you and that uh, you would draw our nation back to you, that uh, our gaze would look to you more and more than we have in recent years. Thank you, Father, for being a God we can ask this and we can trust. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, how many of you, um, in fact, when I, let me say it this way. When I first came, it's been three years ago this week that I came, so I just passed my third anniversary here. And I know it seems like an eternity, doesn't it? So uh, <laughs> one of the questions I kept getting was, how do we lower the average age of our church? Somehow that's my responsibility, apparently, because everybody asks that. That's one of the questions during the candidating week. So we've done lots of things. How many of you enjoy seeing the teenagers up here when we're doing worship? Let me see your hands. Or clap. That's fine. Or the teenagers and the young, the young adults down here doing communion. Isn't that a great thing? And um, so I remember asking the question of the elders, you sure you want to uh, have all those pesky millennials come to our church? I happen to love them passionately, have spent lots of years working with them. They said, yeah. And I said, okay, get ready for a ride. And so we are on a ride. So it's been three years. We've really made intergenerational ministry one of our core values. Uh, We talk about it as staff and elders and everything that we do. We have, I think, three or four intergenerational small groups now. You see you see our young adults present doing things with us all over the place. We thought it would be a great thing to invite Betsy. Betsy, come on up here. Betsy's a good friend. She's a professor at Denver Seminary. This is her area of specialty. And so I said, I think you should come and have a talk with us. They're going to love our church, by the way. I'm already loving them. They seem awesome. Oh, these are better than the first service. You won't tell. You ought to see the first. Uh, You were there, right? Yeah, yeah, I was there. (laughs) And so we wanted her to come talk about some of the differences in our generations and why we experience what we experience. There is some tension along the way, isn't there? Now, she won't tell you this. But she actually just published a book called Effective Generational Ministry. I've already read about a third of it. Mark's read all of it. Uh, When you hear her, you're going to want it. In fact, all the books we brought are gone. The first service, see what I mean? The Mm -hmm. first service, they took them all. Yeah, that's pretty selfish. Yeah, that's pretty selfish of them, right? But those are those boomers. That's true. They're a little egocentric. (laughs) A little Mm -hmm. egocentric. So uh, if you want to go ahead and order one, there's one out there, or we'll get more for you. 
and we'll have them available. But it's worth reading if you really want to understand what's happening in our church and why we're experiencing some of the wonderful things and the challenges that we're experiencing. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have fun. Will do. All right. So, as Jim said, my name is Betsy. Um, my full-time job is that I teach counseling at Denver Seminary, and then I have a small private practice in Littleton um, as a counselor as well. But about once a month, it averages out to be, I get to come into churches, nonprofits, Fortune 500 companies, U.S. military uh, branches, and talk about intergenerational relationships. And it's super fun. Um, and so it's when Jim and I started talking about this, and he invited me up here, um, I'm real excited to come up here, especially because as Jim and Mark started telling me about what you all are up to in this church and how you're doing ministry, I was like, you guys are doing what I keep telling people they should be doing. <laughs> and most of the time I get brought into an organization or a church because there's a big problem. And I get brought in to kind of motivate people to get on change kind of bandwagon and shift things that direction. And before I say anything else, I want you to hear that I am here to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing. And I'm here to give you information and background as to why you guys have approached ministry the way you've, you've approached it. And to hopefully then encourage you to hear if there's something in this that you can go, oh, I can run with that or that helps me make more sense here. But this is a unique experience for me to be a part of a community and to come into a community where I get to be here as your cheerleader rather than as the person that's being like, now you know you really should do this different. So, so thank you for that opportunity. Um, this topic for me got started about 12, 13 years ago when I was in seminary. Um, I did my counseling degree at Denver Seminary. And I was sitting in a, in a Bible class. And um, I grew up with theology just being normal dinner time conversation. That was, that was my parents. That was just what we did. And so I chose seminary for a counseling degree so that I could continue that. It was fun for me. But I was sitting in this Bible class, and I remember thinking, if I believe that Scripture doesn't change and good theology doesn't change, why is it that this course is helping me have better conversations with my parents but is making it harder to have conversations with my peers? The concepts aren't different, but something in this presentation is different. And what is that? Is it a shift from modernism to postmodernism? Is it a generational shift? What, what is that? But I was 22 in seminary, and I didn't know what to do with that. So I shelved it. And when I got to my doc program, I now had the opportunity to actually dive into this and research. And so my dissertation was on generational affiliation as a component of culture. Could you look at baby boomers, Xers, and millennials as separate cultures based off of their unique values, beliefs, and worldview? And the answer was yes. And so what I bring to this conversation is a perspective that says, rather than looking at generations from as, as just this framework of older people down to younger people, what if we look at them as different cultures? And what if we apply all that we have learned about cross-cultural missions and ministry to cross-generational interactions? And so that lays the foundation of the framework that, that I take in this conversation. The other major piece that underlies this comes out of this quote from Gordon T. Smith in his book, Courage and Calling. And he says, but those who bemoan the next generation's shortcomings grow more and more bitter, angry, disappointed, and cynical. On the other hand, those who bless not only grow old with grace and joy, they have a disproportionate influence on the generation that follows. 
I love starting here. And if you ever hear me speak again, I always start here because it's really important to me. It's important to me because too often we approach interactions with other people from the perspective of how do I get you to agree with me? How do I convince you that I'm right and you need to get on board with me? Whether we consciously think it or not, we're quietly trying to get that to happen, right? But Smith in this quote is saying, okay, you, you may have this desire to influence, and that's not a bad thing. But choose intentionally how you go about trying to have that influence. Is it a top-down, punitive, cynical, you should know better? Or is it a, how do I bless you? How do I provide grace to you? How do I extend joy to you so that you hear me? And that we can work together and draw out the good that's in you. So as we talk about each generation, we're going to spend most of our time on millennials. But as we talk about each generation, I ask you to come at it from the perspective of what can I learn rather than what do I wish I could have taught somebody else. That perspective of saying there is something in each of these generations that's not mine that, that I'm lacking and that I could benefit from. Drawing off of Paul's idea of the body and that each one of us contributes a different part of the body, I think each generation contributes a different part of the body as well. And so if boomers are really good at being the hand, millennials aren't going to be good at being the hand. And Xers aren't going to be good at being the hand because boomers already got the hands covered. So we've got to look at, okay, what is it that each one brings and how do we come together as a full and effective body? So that's kind of our foundations here. I'm going to put this on the screen, and I'm going to come back to it and work our way, work it into everything else that we talk about. Um, but it's just it's up here for you. What I want to, as you're kind of reading through that, I want to give you some framework here. So, one of the foundational tenets of generational studies that I've found is that every generation takes for granted the good that's gone before them, reacts against the bad, and then responds within their own historical context. So if you parallel that to parenting and to an individual, each one of us, whether we were parented or our parents, so have some experience in the parenting realm, one way or the other, right? we can look back and go, all right, there were things in my childhood that I just, that's, that was good parenting. I liked how my family did family dinners or curfew or different rules around these things. And that's, so I take that for granted, that that's good parenting. But then there are the things that we all look back and go, I will never be the parent who... Right? You react against the bad. And then there's historical context that comes into play. So whether you were a boomer and putting your child in the car just meant like you create this little buffer on the back floor, the seat, the, the floor of the back seat where you cushion in the little baby so they're fine. Or you're now the parent of a young child and you realize that they're going to have to sit in their car seat facing the back until they're like 16 years old. Right? So... <laughs> our cultural framework, I'm sorry, our cult, oh, I lost me, here we go, um, our cultural context impacts a lot of how we go about parenting and how we go about understanding what's good or bad. We take for granted the good, we react against the bad, and we respond to our own context. If we do that as individuals, we do that as large collective generations too. So as we talk through all this, we're going to end up coming back to that pattern A couple different times. What was taken for granted? What was reacted against? So to understand context then, we need to know who came before the the, the millennials. And the silent and the baby boomer generation are generally our older cohorts in a church. 
Um, the silent generation uh, were born before the baby boomers. They're called the silent generation because they quietly went about doing what needed to be done. We don't have a lot of empirical research on the silent generation, mainly because boomers started the generational research and they thought, we're pretty awesome, we need to find out who we are. And who cares what came before? Because screw the man, we don't need that. And we're just going to move forward. So we don't have a lot of research on, on the silence as far as generational understanding. And so I don't speak a lot about them because I don't want to put words in your mouth as to who you are. I don't think that's fair. But I will say, what we do know is that for many of us, the silent generation is a generation that created the foundation of our churches, that created the foundation of the organizations that we were a part of, that set this platform on which boomers launched and got to take a lot of the credit. But it was from the silence that they were able to do that. Baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964. And um, up until the millennials came along, they were the largest generation in American history. You no longer get that title. Even if all of the boomers who had died were still living, the millennials still outnumber you. So you don't get that title anymore. Xers were born between 1965 and 1981. And just in full disclosure, this is where I land. I think with anything with culture, it's important to identify where you're at and know that that's going to have a bias in how you see things. So I am... I was born in June of 81, so I'm like right on the border because an Xer ends in 81. Um, so if you're like me and you're within a year or two of a boundary line, you're called a cusper. Um, and that means that depending on birth order, who raised you, um, geographic location that you were raised in, religious background, you could go either direction. So I identify as an Xer. I'm the oldest of three girls, raised in a pretty conservative home in the Midwest. That kind of pulled me older. Okay? So um, Xers are the smallest of the three generations with only 60, about 61 million people. Um, They're the first generation to be born with the opportunity to have their lives restricted even before birth. So the birth control pill was available for parents of Xers as well as abortion. Um, so the first generation that had both those things available to them. For boomers, they didn't have either when they were being born. And with millennials, we see that we also have in vitro available. So not only could birth be restricted, it could also be created. So that shifts some of that cultural context, and we'll get into some of that in a little bit. These formulas up here, I'll come back to them, but just know that they're there. So millennials, they were born between 1982 and 2001. And they are the, like I said, they're the largest generation in American history. It's expected that by the time we reach 2020, there will be 90 million millennials, both from natural births here in the U.S. and immigration, making them the largest generation in American history by a lot. Um, there's about 80 million boomers currently. So it's a good shift in, in size. Millennials, I love you. <laughs> um, I, I think you're awesome. Um, I, most of my job is working with millennials, and I get very passionate about this because I think too often we hear all the negative press about millennials. You get labeled as narcissistic and entitled and the boomerang generation because you leave home and then you come back into your parents' basement, and you've got this kind of bad reputation in some ways. But what I think is really important is recognize that, recognizing that any generation has two different paths to it. There's the mainstream path. So your baby boomers are on the mainstream. 
They're the ones that helped build industry, build commerce. They were the ones that kind of went about doing what needed to be done, getting education, and really setting the foundations for who we are as a society. But then you have, man, I'm sorry, this is wrecking on me today. Um, my hair is annoying. There you go. Um, then you have the deviant track of the boomers, and that was your hippies, right? But then you get to your Xers, and your mainstream of Xers are your people who really started this at-home and small business trend in the U.S. They tend to be entrepreneurial on smaller scales, and they're the behind-the-scenes, doing-what-needs-to-be-done kind of generation. But then their deviant side is the skaters and the grunge rockers and the big, big hair band kind of cokeheads, right? You all know who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> And then you get to millennials, and your mainstream are these amazing people who are more culturally aware, more internationally aware, highly motivated in social justice, and generally well-educated, well-traveled on some level, and just they have this broad awareness of the world, and they have the resources internally as well as externally to address concerns in the world. And their deviant track is the entitled and narcissistic and boomerang kids that aren't taking responsibility of their life. But that's the deviant track. So when we talk about millennials, please do not assume that they're all deviant, just as we don't assume that all Xers love Seattle grunge rock or that all boomers just want to sit around and smoke pot all day. We learned Summit County. Don't know. Anyway. But, <laughs> so, we've got, these are, this is our, our breakdown here. So I want to cover who millennials are. Because if we're going to reach them as a cross-cultural experience, we need to understand this culture. This millennial culture. So, I'm going to challenge this first idea of that they're entitled. People can be entitled. Individuals from any generation can be entitled. This generation, by and large... I will challenge the idea that they are entitled and replace it with a language that they are expectant. The reason for this is that when I think of entitlement, entitlement has this sense of I am owed. This is owed to me, right? Because I am better than, and, and there is a, there's a superiority element that comes with entitled. In the interviews I've done with millennials, they will say, we know that we are no better than anyone who's gone before us. And we don't expect to be treated better than anybody else. We actually really value equality and equity for, for all people. But we have been raised in a society that focused on us. Our parenting models were about us. Our K-12 education was about us. And it was we were the center of everything. So when we get into adulthood, we expect that what we have experienced will be what we continue to experience. They're not the only ones that do this. Every single human being in the world does this. We all expect that what we have experienced with other people in our past will be the experiences we have with people in the future. If people in our past have been mean and cold and dismissive, we expect that new relationships will be hard to form because people will be mean and cold and dismissive. But if people have been warm and inviting, we expect that moving to a new place will find people to be warm and inviting. That expectancy is very different than entitlement. The difference is that what Xers and Boomers grew up expecting looks very different than what millennials grew up expecting. Does that make sense? Okay. So with that, we need to be aware that as older generations, 
we, in many ways, I think I can say this, we screwed them over. Because we set up a K-12 process that said, life is all about you. You get stickers and trophies for showing up and breathing. Good job. <laughs> and then they get to the workplace, and they're like, what do you mean I have to have an annual review? And it's, you don't, my boss doesn't care what I had for lunch yesterday. My mama cares what I had for lunch yesterday. My mama represents authority figures in my life, and you're a new authority figure, and authority figures have always cared what I did yesterday and for lunch and what, how, I, how I slept last night and all these little things. Why doesn't my boss care? Because your K-12 experience did not on-ramp you into the same world. Every generation previously, K-12 was meant to on-ramp you into the adult world. And those practices and experience in, in the home and in school were preparatory for the real world out there. The ramp that millennials were put on does not lead them to the real world. Okay? So on one hand, millennials, sorry, you got the shaft. You're going to have to figure out how to do with that. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But you have a responsibility when you recognize that there's a deficit in what you've been taught to find the resources to fill those gaps. But we as the older generation have a responsibility to recognize that we may have failed you in certain spaces. And whether that's as family or as church community, we need to come alongside you and fill in some of those gaps with you. It's a, in some ways, it's a reparenting process, but that reparenting is in no way condescending. It is supportive, it is facilitative, and it is respectful. But it's not because, oh, poor little millennial just has no idea. There's some aspect of we failed you. The system we set up was well-intended, taking for granted the good and reacting against the bad. So those stickers and trophies we gave you were because, as in our childhood, we hated being the last picked for kickball. And we hated feeling how, how awful it was when only three people got recognized as first, second, and third place in something, when we worked our tails off. And we didn't want our kids to have to experience that. We wanted them to be recognized and validated for the work they put in and the effort they put in. Great. Awesome. But we, over, we overshot it. And so now there's this, there's this communal responsibility to come alongside and work together in that. So that ties into this low frustration tolerance that I have up there in like white letters, smaller. Because one of the things that happened in our really awful on-ramp that we tried to give you was that out of this desire to protect children, to care for children, to not see you experience pain, we gave you helmets and elbow pads and knee pads and rubber playground equipment because heaven forbid you slide down that metal slide that we all grew up with and burn your thighs like we did. Like, that would not be okay, right? Because I don't want my baby to get hurt. I don't want my baby to have to suffer with that. I don't know, whatever. Okay, but what you missed in that, taking for granted the good, is that when you learn how to deal with small pain, you develop lessons that help you deal with big pain. And so we took that from you. Well intended, but we took that from you. And so that leads to a low frustration tolerance, which sounds exactly, which is exactly like it sounds. I have an inability to, to tolerate frustration. And so deferred gratification, patience, those types of things become much harder because this is a generation that was hovered over the helicopter parenting and was given a lot, well intended, but pendulum swinging from that taking for granted the good and reacting against the bad. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, 
This is also the generation that was raised by parents who said, I will never be the parent who says, because I'm the mom, that's why. I'm going to answer all your questions because I want my kids to know they can ask me questions. Great. There's a lot of facilitative learning that can happen in that. But what is lost in that is a hierarchical understanding of power and structure and that you earn the right to step into certain power positions. It also affects how someone sees God. Because parent-child relationship in its ideal form is meant to represent God and his people. And there are times where God says, because I'm God, that's why. And we have to learn submission and we have to learn that we are not God. And that doesn't diminish our value. It gives us a different value as people made in his image, but not him. And so for our children, whether they're millennials or the next generation coming after them, Letting them ask questions is absolutely imperative and important. But, per, but choosing to highlight that you want to be their friend over their parent means that then they approach God wanting to be God's peer rather than letting God be in charge because of that parallelism that's there. That doesn't mean you take on an authoritarian parenting model that is just dictatorial because God is highly relational with his people and he does let us ask questions and he does let us push back but at the end of the day he is God and we are not and so that comes into play this formula that I wanted to spend a little bit of time on is this formula of evangelism and discipleship and for boomers this formula was significantly simpler it was if I present truth and the Holy Spirit is working you will be there will be change So this is the four spiritual laws. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The bridge illustration. Those types of things, right? There's nothing wrong with them. They're very culturally fitting at the time. They no longer are effective. Um, One of my theology profs in seminary had said, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is the biggest bait and switch in all of of all of Christian history. He said, because at the end of the day, yes, Jesus loves you, but the plan he has for your life you may not see as wonderful. It is painful, it is costly, it is isolating, it is lonely. He is with you in it, but it will cost you everything. And it will be painful, but in the end, you will be with God. Still want it? Still what you want? That is an honest presentation of the gospel. Yes, Jesus loves you, and yes, he does have a wonderful plan for your life. But that doesn't mean it's rainbows and butterflies all the time. And... This generation started with Xers, but particularly with millennials. There is a high value in authenticity and a high value in honesty. So don't give me some line that Jesus is going to make my life all better because Coke and Nike and Reebok and all these other products are offering me the same thing. So why is your Jesus any different? Why is what you're trying to sell me any better or any different than this marketing ploy that I've been watching on TV my whole life? But when we represent the gospel in a way that is, I think, more honest and more full, we give this generation something to give their lives to. That's what the gospel is supposed to be. We give our lives for it. And this generation that has been, in many ways, catered to has an existential need that we all have to recognize that we are are connected to something bigger and there is something greater than ourselves that this life is about. That's the gospel. That's the gospel they need to hear. Not that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and he wants to be your best friend. Awesome, fine. 
But he has something bigger for you. He has something that gives you purpose. He has something that gives you meaning. He has something that is worth giving your life for. So for millennials, this formula that went from truth plus the Holy Spirit equals change to for Xers, truth with a contextual relevance to who you are plus the Holy Spirit equals change to now millennials is if I present truth that is relevant to your context after I have earned the right to have relationship with you and the Holy Spirit is working, then we might see change. That is a much longer process. It is a much more personal process. It is a much more invested process. So when I was in college, I was really involved with the Navigators, and one of our staff at that point had said that the research was showing that the average American, this would have been in the early 2000s, needed to have experienced the gospel seven different times before they were willing to accept it. That doesn't mean someone presented the gospel to me seven times. That means I experienced it relationally with you seven different times from different people. But in post-Christian Europe, that number was 14, not seven. And I would venture 15, 20 years later, we are significantly closer to that 14 number than the seven. And so I visualize this like a chain link. Um, and, And so you don't know as you interact with somebody if you're chain link number one or number 14, but each one is important. And each one contributes to the overall experience that this person has with the God of the universe. But for a millennial, that means I do need to know what truth is. I do need to be grounded scripturally and theologically. But I also need to understand the context that they're living in. I need to understand who they are personally and where the gospel speaks to them. Jesus did an amazing job at doing this. The gospel he presented to the woman at the well was very different than the gospel he presented to Zacchaeus, and yet it was unchanging. The presentation looked different. The truths didn't change, but the presentation changed. So how do we develop this relationship? How do we engage this space, and why should we even care? Why should we be talking about this as a different cultural shift? Part of that comes from the research that we have on millennials and their interest in religion and spirituality. Today, they are the least represented generation in the church. The highest number um, in terms of generational numbers in American society, but both percentage-wise and and, and number-wise, the smallest represented in the church. So we're losing them. Even if they're raised in the church, they're not staying. And we'll talk in a second why that is. But then they're also the least interested in religion and spirituality. When polled saying, how important is this to you? Only 40% of millennials said that religion or spirituality, so we're not even talking organized religion, we're not talking Christian faith, we're talking spirituality and religion collectively. Only 40% said it was important to them versus 59% of Xers and millennials who say it's important. I'm sorry, Xers and boomers who say it's important. And only 15% of millennials say that living a religious life is very important to them. So a faith that impacts the way they do life is of small importance to this, this generation. And I would argue that part of it is because we have not presented the gospel in a way that captures their attention and connects to their heart as to why this would be significant to them. Understanding where we may have messed up, where we may need to connect a little bit better, which, again, you guys are doing a good job. 
but the church as a whole. There's a book by David Kinnaman called You Lost Me, in which he compiles a bunch of Barna Group research on millennials who have left the church. So um, people who at, millennials who at one point identified as, as Christian and part of a church community that now say, nope, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't affiliate with that anymore. Um, he talks in that book, in, in, in You Lost Me, about one particular group of millennials that he calls exiles. And he parallels them to Daniel and his friends in Babylon. So if we go back to that Old Testament story of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we've got Daniel and his friends in Babylon where they've had to, they've been captured, but they have this special position with the king of Babylon. And they get to sit at the king's table, but they have to say, nope, I can't eat that, and I can do this. And, but I, they're still trying to figure out how they hold on to their Hebrew faith while being in Babylon, without a temple to worship in, without a community to be a part of, they're having to figure out what it means to be a follower of Yahweh when you're not with Yahweh's people, right? So Kinnaman parallels many millennials to this because for many in the, who identify as exiles, they feel as if the church has kicked them out because they don't look right. They don't do church the way boomers and Xers have always done church. And they are saying, but you don't get it. We live in Babylon now. And I need a faith community that understands that I am trying to gain audience with the king, not to be like him, but to have influence. And in that, I need different tools. I need church to look different. I need faith community to look different. Because my call is to influence this culture, to influence Babylon for the kingdom. And so many of these exiles, why they're called exiles, is that they have left the church because they don't feel like they have a place. They still love Jesus. They still would profess salvation. But they don't affiliate with church anymore because they don't feel like they're welcome. Because they want to do things out of the box. So we'll talk in a second about what that ends up looking like. But one of the ways that churches like you and other churches need to be engaging is that we need to create space For this generation to serve, to have a hand in creating ministry opportunities, and to make their mark. That it's not just the parents' faith, the older generation's faith, and you just wait your turn until it's time. They need to be invited in, like you're doing. Um, This is about apprenticeship in my mind, which is different than just mentorship or discipleship. Mentorship often has a sense of like someone who's gone before you who's teaching you what to do, telling you how to do things. Apprenticeship, I think of a blacksmith. And if you are a blacksmith's apprentice, you come in and you are doing the work with the master blacksmith. Now, you start with the little tasks that you can do, and he slowly teaches you more and more until he hands off the business to you. That's the goal of apprenticeship, is the handoff. And too often in our society, with boomers, with a pay-your-dues leadership, that you start at the bottom, you work your way up, so you got to pay your dues, millennials. And millennials are going, but what do I do in the meantime? In the meantime, there needs to be apprenticeship. In the meantime, there needs to be this invitation and development of skill that they can, so that when you die, because you're going to die, no matter how far much you fight it, it's going to happen, that when you die, there is, your legacy continues in a person, not in a program. Because if it's just in a program, it's going to die with you. So, I can keep going on that, but I'll stop because I'm kind of getting all worked up in my head. So, one of the things with that, personally invite and engage them. 
So this is kind of the crux that we're looking at. So that's an intentionality, it's an authenticity, and it's in teachability. So we're going to go back to that first premise at the beginning that said, as you learn about different generations, different people, you take that perspective of where can I be taught? What can I learn? Too often ministry looks like older teaching younger without the reciprocal relationship. So yes, there is something that needs to be respected and honored in the older teaching the younger. Paul's instructions, older teach the younger. And if this generation is living in a different culture, they have a different influence and they have a different call, then we need to be teachable in what they're learning and what they can tell us about how to have influence in this world. That intentionality looks like, um, for me, uh, when, I, when I first got to Denver Seminary, I was doing a talk on millennials for faculty. And um, Dr. Craig Blomberg, who's a New Testament scholar, who's, he actually just celebrated his 30th year at the seminary this year, um, came up to me afterwards and said, I'm going to do what you said. And I was like, crap, what did I say? Like, I don't, I don't know what I said. That Blomberg would want to do something I said. And he said, you, you said that the older should seek out people that they could invest in. And I want to invest in you. So can we do lunch once a month? Uh, yeah. I'm not turning that down. And so ever since then, Craig and I get lunch once a month. He is the history keeper of the seminary. He is the story keeper. And so the first year, it was me saying, tell me about this community I just moved into. What do I need to know? It wasn't for gossip. It wasn't for dirt on people. It was about, tell me the context I just became a part of. And he was very intentional about that and very purposeful and saying, here is the goal. And with that, he said, part of my other goal is to help you get your dissertation published because the church needs this. So that's where that book came from. And the authenticity piece comes into play where this generation, we don't want your stories tied up in a nice little bow that's pretty. Because we know that nobody has a nice story that ties up in a bow all pretty. We've seen enough reality television to know that everybody's crazy on some level. And we'd much rather know what your crazy is before you blindside us a couple years in. So tell us from the get-go. So for my husband and I, we got married about a year ago, and we had a, a couple in our church who took us under wing and were mentoring us. And um, I remember walking into their house one day to meet with the wife, and as I walked in the front door, the husband walked out the back door, and... Um, I looked at the wife, and I was like, so how are you guys doing? She's like, oh, awful. We just had the worst fight ever. He's leaving. Don't worry. I don't know when I'll be back. Whatever. And, <laughs> and knowing, like, they're, they're feisty Latin Americans, and so it's really also all the more entertaining because there's just this fire with everything. And, um, and I wasn't concerned because we'd lived life with them long enough that I know that that means he'll be back when we're done meeting. And they just needed a little bit of space. But I looked at her, and I said, thank you so much for being honest about that. Because I don't need to know that everything looks pretty. I need to know how you handle things when things aren't pretty. And so talk with me about how you guys are going to resolve this. What does that look like for you? Like, are you guys going to be mad for three or four days? Is it going to be fine when you come back? And that authentic space of saying, like, here's, they, here's you know, after 15, 20 years of marriage, here's where we're at. And here's what this looks like for us. Um, I have a whole lot more trust in who they are and the relationship and the counsel they offer because it doesn't seem one-dimensional. So that doesn't mean you overshare and you burden all of everybody with everything, but it means when you're asked, you're honest um, and, and be willing to share that. 
enter into their world, this is a space that you guys do well. This is um, pub theology. This is that idea of meeting people where they're at, not saying, well, you know what? You know where the church is. You can come find us. Nope. We go to them. The gospel is not about you and I being comfortable in worship, in service, in church. The gospel is about us knowing that we are safe and secure in our relationship with the Lord, so safe and secure that we can go out into the world and risk. That we can go out into where the world is, where there is darkness, knowing that we are safe and meet people where they're at because the gospel needs to come to them, not them come to us. So in some communities, that looks like pub theology. In other communities, that means that you start an a book study at your house, not a Bible study, a book study at your house that is written by a secular artist that has good principle or a secular author who has good principles. And you invite other people in for a book study on parenting or on management skills or on leadership development or whatever. But you create space that is comfortable for them with the intentional purpose of engaging in spiritual conversation. Because it is truth plus context, plus relationship, plus the Holy Spirit, that equals change. And that takes time and investment. So with that, I want to come back to the principle that says, you guys are doing a really good job. You are doing better than most churches I get to speak to. And I am so excited and so blessed to have gotten to sit with Jim and sit with Mark and hear about what you guys are doing and the attitude that you bring toward ministry. I hope that through this you have a better understanding of why you're doing what you're doing, some of the cultural context, the framework for what you're doing, and that you're encouraged to keep going, to keep moving forward, to keep stretching yourselves in different ways, knowing that you are doing this cross-cultural ministry, not just reaching younger people. It is, yes, reaching younger people, but also expanding the cultural reach that you as a community have in this broader society. So thank you for letting me be here. Thank you for letting me share with you. I hope you have a wonderful Mother's Day. And um, yeah, thanks much. My pleasure. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward to uh, take the offering. One of the challenges that all churches face, uh, and they always have, uh, and we face it as well, is as the average age goes down, in our church, we invite more and more young couples in. The challenge is uh, it's harder to raise the money for our budget. And so for those of you that are older, um, I want to say thank you. And for the younger people here, we should say thank you to our older people that have capacity and commitment because they make it possible to do this. For those of you that are younger, I want to say thank you for asking all the questions and being part of us. For those of us that are older, we are blessed so we can be a blessing. And I just want to say to you, thank you for blessing our younger people by making it possible for us to do this. Our church has always been financially healthy, and I recognize that it's a bunch of the older people that make it happen while the younger people learn and while they raise their children and struggle with the day-to-day cares of the world. Thank you for being generous. You make it possible for us to do the things that we're doing today.
As we prepare to celebrate communion together and close our time, um, I want to give you just a second to thank the Lord. Can you imagine a family where everybody were grandparents? Or everybody were parents? Or, ay, 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 everybody were teenagers? <laughs> That'd be tough, wouldn't it? I mean, that's what diversity brings is a very, very rich blessing. Can we stop and just give you a few seconds to thank the Lord for the diversity that we have, especially for our young families that are here and our young singles that are so challenged to figure this out? Let's take a moment. And now to help prepare us for communion, I'd like to invite those of you that would like to serve us the bread or the cup to come forward and get us ready. And for some of you that uh, may want to come and pray with people, uh, come on up. Uh, For those of you that are new to our church, um, you're welcome to take the elements here. You can kneel and pray. You can take them back and pray. When you're up here, stop and pray with one of us. Uh, We love to pray. Lift up the things that are important to you whether it be a sorrow or a challenge or a praise. It doesn't matter to us. Whatever it is that you would like, lift it up. But you know the story. We've talked many times about God has blessed us so that we can be a blessing to others. And communion is the story of someone who died uh, an excruciating death to be a blessing to us so that we can be a blessing to others. On the night that he was betrayed, I love that language. He always wants to remind us how human we are. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he did what? He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's an entirely new way of relating. We get to present to the world, as Betsy said, something that the world can't see very well at all. We get to represent the one true God to the world by the way we bless others. That's what the new covenant's all about. And that's what communion's all about, is a way of remembering the Lord and saying thank you for your sacrifice to bless us so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Let me pray for you. And then let's celebrate communion. God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Uh, Lord, it still puzzles me that you choose us as your primary way of reflecting your glory. We're so broken. Lord, we, uh, as Mark says, we're knuckleheads. And yet, Lord, that's what you choose to do. Thank you for using us that way. Help us to honor you very well right now in your son for what he did. And help us to be a blessing to those around us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Come and uh, celebrate communion.
Okay, admit it. You all wanted to stand up, didn't you? I could see it in your eyes. You're going like that. You know, can I just say, I just love the women in our church. It doesn't matter how old, how young, if they have children, if they don't have children, if they can't have children, if they've chosen not to, if they're one-year-old, if they're 60 years old, if they're 80 years old, it doesn't matter. I just love the women in our church. Can I have the mothers stand up? Stay standing, stay standing. They have earned our respect, haven't they? Every one of them did a great job, and every one of them messed up. Where do we get to Father's Day? <laughs> it's just great to have mothers. Thank you for, for what you have done. We appreciate you very, very much. And my hope and prayer for you is that today and this week, you have a great week, whether your children remember or not because many of them won't, but we want to say thank you for what you do. Have a great week. Go in peace.